Welcome to Rework, a podcast by 37 Signals about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner, and as always, I am joined by 37 Signals co-founders and the authors of Rework, Jason Freed. How are you this morning? I'm okay. How are you, Sean? Wonderful. And David Heinemeyer Hansen, how are you this afternoon? Good, good, good. Good. Well, the title of this episode is probably going to spoil this answer, but when is the right time to launch your new product? Now! Now! (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday. Yesterday is probably a slightly more accurate answer. Basically, uh, probably before you expect, before you imagine it to be done. I think there's a sense that um, things have to be just right, just perfect. There's all these things everyone's going to notice that you haven't done yet. And it's probably not true. You could probably launch a lot earlier than you expect. Quality should be there. You know, like the things you choose to do yeah, yeah should yeah. be quality. But you probably don't need to do as many of the things that you want to do uh, or that you think you need to do. Do you want to start with this uh, famous story about launching Basecamp without any way to bill for Basecamp? Yeah. <laughs> so when we, we first launched Basecamp in 2004, um, we had prices. It was like, what, I think 1939.59 or something like that per month, depending on the tier you were on. Mm-hmm. And um, we'd be happy to get you to sign up and, and get your account ready. But we, we couldn't bill you. We didn't have a way to bill you. Were you even collecting credit card numbers? Uh, no. Basically, the reason why, and there's a few, there's a few reasons why this happened, but fundamentally, the, the interesting thing is that we couldn't bill you. And that gave us 30 days to build a billing system. And, um, you know, when you only have 30 days before you want to get paid, like you, you make it work in 30 days, it could have taken 90 days. It could have taken 120 days. We wanted to get paid in 30 days. So we built something in 30 days. And what was interesting was that the initial idea for billing Basecamp was, uh, billing annually. That's what we wanted to do. Um, but our bank, our merchant account provider wouldn't allow that because it was too risky. Right. They wouldn't let us charge a customer, let's call it, you know, 500 bucks for a year. Because they didn't know if we'd be in business in three months and then they'd be on the hook for it. And this is pretty early on in the, the idea of paying for software on a month, monthly basis. Yeah, it was kind of not really something people did. Yeah. So they they essentially pushed us to, to build, uh, build monthly. And that's how that whole thing came to be. And that's why we had to sort of change things and scramble at the last minute. But I think it's also interesting to look at just the raw feature set of the first version of Basecamp. There's no way to share files we did not have file sharing. Like you'd think such a <laughs> fundamental part of collaboration is file sharing. But we started when we began building Basecamp at the epicenter, which we thought it's communication. It's basically having posts and having comments on those posts. And then we rolled into, well, the to-dos are really crucial. So we launched with far less than what you would think would be necessary to, to do it. But I think part of the angle here too is whether you're competing with something that already is because hey kind of launched late compared to this uh, Hmm. recommendation to some extent in the fact that hey competes with something very established email clients and services and the bar set by something like gmail is quite high versus when we launched Basecamp, we were competing against non-consumption And I think this is one of those times when it's really good to stress that when you have the opportunity to compete against non-consumption, that is not other software providers who are trying to target exactly the same problem as you're targeting, such that you have to match in the eyes of prospective customers their feature set. 
um, you have much more leeway to launch with less, far less than you think. But even if you take something like, hey, we did not have signatures, for example. Uh, we did not have uh, vacation responders. We did not have a bunch of features that are considered table stakes for an email product. And we could have spent like another year. Like It took over a year to build a bunch of those things. But the proof was in the pudding. What we put out was blue ocean enough, if you will. Like it was enough like new novel stuff that existed in that realm of like, oh, I'd never thought that that was something I wanted to buy, that it made up for the fact that there was a bunch of things missing. And I think that the knowing what you can miss is directly correlated to what do you bring to the table that's novel? And I think yeah. that that's what I like about this launch now thing. Something has to be really worth it. Like with, hey, we had a handful of features like the screener, for example, that comes out totally out of left field. No one's ever really done something like this on a major email product. And that was enough for a lot of people to simply go like, I need that thing. I'm willing to give up a bunch of other things. I mean, we've talked about the Tesla example in the, in the past where they're like, hey, this is a car that runs on batteries. I, I want that. I want the battery car with the computer, the big computer screen in it. And I'm willing to give up fit and finish. I'm willing to give up a bunch of normal car things, right? And I think this helps you steer you in that direction. And also just gives you permission to do something sooner with less money. Like launch now is partly, hey, if you're going to launch quickly with not a lot of people, you can do it for much, much less. Sure, you don't sure. need to raise a bunch of money and all the other things. Going back to the, the base camp and, and billing example, because you didn't have to spend the time before launch building out billing, or you decided not to build out a, a way to bill people, what was that time and energy spent on? Well, I think you could say it wasn't spent. Mm. I mean, I'm sure we did other things kind of also, but the real answer is it wasn't spent. It, it meant we could launch in February of 2004 instead of March or instead of April or instead of May. Yeah. You know, I think that's really the way to look at that thing. It's not like if you save time, you have to put it somewhere else. You can also just not use it. That I think is the the deeper benefit here um, that we're trying yeah. to get to is the sooner something's out, again, it can't be shitty, but the sooner that it's out, the more eyes you get on it, the more people start to find out about it, the more acceleration you get from it, the 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 more you learn about it yourself, the more customers tell you about it, you know, the sooner you can tell if it's gonna work or not. Like you you need those answers. And the longer you wait for them, you know, you don't have them. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but you don't have them and you need them. So that's what you do with the extra time is you get the thing out. As entrepreneurs, as product builders, you always have more ideas. There's always just that one more thing you can build. And then there's one more thing after that. And this is a way to cap that by saying like, you know what? If you're not uncomfortable by the time you're launching, it's way too late to give you permission to say like, ah, I think we really need this thing. And we're like, no, just, just go. I'll take another example from Hey, which was when we launched Hey World. So Hey World is this essentially a newsletter blocking service that we uh, attached to Hey. And Jason and I basically built it in just under two weeks. There's a bunch of stuff that at the time we were building, we we're like, oh, it'd be really nice to have that. It'd be really nice to have that. And we had a long discussion, for example, about like, how do we need to deal with content moderation? How do we need to deal with if bad content is posted? Like you can scare yourself into not launching forever. 
Because there'll always be some risk factor. There'll always be some edge case scenario you can envision in your head might plausibly happen. And if you try to prepare for every contingency before you leave, you got to ship containers of stuff, right? And all you need is a damn backpack. What fits in the backpack is what you leave with, not all the shit you could fit in in 50 containers, right? And that was one of the things even internally at Basecamp when we were, Jason and I were sort of almost making a point to ship this like uncomfortably quickly. Like, let's just run to launch, rush to launch. And a bunch of people were like, "Ah, I'm not sure about that. Like, here's all (laughs) these reasons why that might not work and, and so forth. And we launched it. And in that particular case, none of it mattered. Yeah. Even the time we had spent on the content moderation thing and we had spent some amount of time deliberating over that was totally freaking wasted. Never had a problem with it. Doesn't mean it's not feasible. A problem could occur in the future, but like clearly that wasn't something we needed to do to launch now. It's one of those things that's actually so much easier to do when it's early and the people building this stuff are also the people whose ass is on the line in the sense of the business. It's more reasonable for you to accept some risks here. Launching now and launching with things that might go wrong, like eventually some of those things are going to go wrong. Eventually you're going to guess wrong on some of it and some of it's going to come back to bite you, right? And I think the bigger a company gets, the harder it gets for the people who are working on it but aren't um, sort of responsible for whether the thing fails or not and don't want their ass on the line for it, right? Like there's a reason why you have that whole term, cover your ass, is because like you don't want to be in the shooting line for it. But when Jason and I were building something like, hey, well, we could just do it fully like startup early days style. And it's just a great reminder that like it's possible to build something like Hey World in two weeks, which ended up being a great success and thousands and thousands of people posted to it. And it's been a driver of signups and all these other things, basically just doing like 5% of the work. I love this thought experiment that you lay out, and this kind of relates to that. Uh, that if I only had, if I only gave myself two weeks to launch, what would I cut out? Is that still the way that you develop? Yeah, I mean, there there has to be some point that is mostly fixed. You can bend that sign a little bit, a day or two. It can be a week, but like it has to kind of be in the ground. Um, otherwise, like uh, the instincts will be like what David was saying, like, there's always one more thing to do. There's always another idea you can do. There's always a way to make it better. There's always this thing you forgot to do. There's always this edge case you picked up in the last five minutes that you need to deal with. Uh, new, new ideas should and will continue to come at you if you're thinking about this stuff. So it's never going to end. You have to work against your own nature. Although you could say some, some sometimes your nature is like, get this thing out the door. But really, what's really pushing against you are there are always more ideas there's never enough time. And so, you know, why not make time? Well, that's the problem. You make time, this thing never gets out the door and it, it right. pushes other things away. I think there's right. other thing to keep in mind. is like time is, in this case, is sort of like a conveyor belt. Like, you know, it, it pushes everything else too. It's not like time doesn't really happen in a vacuum. It can if you have dozens of teams working on things in parallel. Most companies don't. Most people have something going on. And if, they, if they're doing this, they can't do something else. Right. And so- thinking about time in that way, like this is actually very costly. If we keep pushing this out, we're pushing other things off. That's a nice way to start to think about it and go, is it worth it? Jason, you were saying that you can't make it shitty. So how do you make these cuts and how do you push this deadline without sacrificing quality? Well, I mean, you can make it shitty. 
<laughs> and it's and, 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 and you know, there, there's that's a sliding scale, right? It's like, you know, what does that really mean? Of course, one thing we talk about internally a lot is, um, and this is always a debate, which is like, what degree of fidelity matters in this case on this thing? So objectively, you could look at something and go, it's not high enough quality because it doesn't do X, Y, or Z. But you might also go, in this case, it doesn't really matter. Let's put the X, Y, and Z on this other thing instead. It's a debate and a discussion and a conversation. For every piece? Uh, Some stuff's obvious. Some stuff's not. Some stuff, Uh there's miscommunication. David and I have been debating this one feature for like a few weeks on like what level of fidelity should apply on certain things. And we have different point of view on it. And like some of the stuff you just debate and some of the stuff you just decide not to do. Um, Some of the stuff you decide to do. There's not a like a process you can throw something on to get the answer other than like debating, discussing, making cases, and then also being mindful of time. Cause like debating and discussing takes time too. Like sure. It could take three or four days and then you just burn three or four days and maybe only in two weeks. Then then you just can't do it. And that could be worth it too. So that happens sometimes. It doesn't happen that often, but it does sometimes. And that's just one of the trade-offs you have to live with when you, when you're, you know, you have a living, breathing product that different people have different points of view on it and time's a factor and, talent's a factor who's around who's available to do the work and you know like it's not it's it's very it's a very messy process in reality which is actually it's funny i was talking to someone about this yesterday brian who's who's uh helping head up product strategy here he was saying that he he loves reading these like long you know sometimes companies put out these really long case study posts of like how a project went and i love reading those too but i think they're probably 90 percent bullshit because <laughs> What actually happens is a lot messier than like yeah. it, it, it was this, you know, we had this beautiful discussion and this sketch went to here and this insight came and we built this thing and that's all part of the story. But the real story is like, it, it's messy. Yeah. You don't really know. You, you kind of think something's going to work. You get in an argument about it. You debate something. You agree on something. You do it and you still don't like it. There's a lot of stuff that goes nowhere. It goes sideways. And that's kind of the real, real work is really more like that. It's really messy. Mm-hmm. And dirty ultimately, you know, you end up with something that's good in the end, but it's not these like beautiful narratives. The narratives to me are, are the retelling of the story after the fact, you're going to kind of tell the good version of the story. But if someone had a camera over your shoulders, it'd be, it's actually interesting to watch like the, the Beatles documentary. I think it was a pretty good example of that. It's pretty boring, pretty messy, pretty slow. Things go nowhere. Sometimes there's a breakthrough. It's not this like beautiful process. I think the other factor here, though, I like to distinguish between fidelity and quality in the sense that quality for me, when we talk about it internally, is is it well built, right? Like you you have a sort of a target fidelity is, is what the end user sees and how it works or is it smooth or something. But under all those degrees of fidelity is... Uh, process that built that, right? Like it's the back of the cabinet stuff. Like you just sort of throw the components in there and just like, yeah, we'll fix it in post. We'll fix it some other day. We'll fix it later. No, totally willing to move the dial in fidelity. And I think actually that fidelity dial is one of the most important ones for our productivity because at least as a, as a product decider, if you will, it's easy to just say, just make the best of everything. There's no, sure. there's no sort of skill in that. Give me a hundred percent. 
Like make it the very best of the best. There's no skill in that. Everyone can say they want the best of the best, right? The skill is in figuring out when it matters. There's some interactions where you want the best of the best because that is just a crucial point that defines the whole product or it's the feel of it. And then there's just as much skill in realizing when like meh will do. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's something that you do very rarely. It doesn't matter at all. It's not part of a main flow. It can be very low fidelity and no one gives a damn that it's low <laughs> fidelity. Right. Right. And, and if that's the case, you get to build something for 5% of what it would cost to build the high fidelity version. But both of those versions, the 5% version and the 100% fidelity version comes in like proper quality or not. In terms of the implementation, in terms of how you approach the work, is your competence applied to it, right? This is one of the reasons, for example, I love cheap cars in the sense <laughs> of like a very low priced car. Someone had to make a bunch of very hard decisions about how to spend two extra dollars on that knob, right? Like there's some pricing person who's sitting there. Do you know what? The slightly ni- nicer knob is like $2.15. And we can get one that's eh, a little crappier that's like a dollar ninety-five. And like you have to add all this up. There's five thousand parts in a car, and you want to sell it for eighteen thousand dollars or whatever it is that uh, on the low end, right? Those are hard decisions, and they're exactly those kind of decisions. Does it matter, right? Like, is this the thing right. they'll notice, or will they notice this other thing? Is it the quality of the leather and the steering wheel? And then we could get away with some scratchy plastics in the in the trunk or something. There's real skill to that, far more so, in my opinion, often than sort of some supercar where they're like, cost is no object. We'll just build the best of the best. That's also worth appreciating. But to me, there's far more skill in figuring out exactly how do you put a $18,000 car together? I mean, again, the Tesla example, right? Like, so Elon is, is targeting, is it 25000 or something, right? Like, And you're like, it's not there yet. We can't make it yet because the number of compromises we'd have to make to get there it's just not possible, but you can just imagine sitting in on those discussions. Is like, could we could we save like a hundred bucks on this? And people be like, I don't know, I don't know. And and this was the, the same thing again. That example, like the car comes out, and like traditional car makers go, like, this is a totally crappy car for forty thousand dollars. Like they they traded off all these other things. We would never make the trade offs. That's what's so interesting, and this is what differentiate products of all kinds. That all these trade-offs needs to be made when you're trying to sell something in a market at a given price to a given consumer. That really is what product management and stewardship and, and design at the end of the day is. And there's just such a huge variety because you can turn on all these million dials. But for me to be happy at work, wherever those dials end up, implementation has to be good. Can't do crappy work. Well, perfect. I think that's a pretty good place to, to stop. Uh, can we pop open the old listener mailbag for a second? Let's do it. This week, we have a question from Mark. Hello, Sean and Jason and David. I have a question about QA and the quality process for you. You've spoken before about having one designer and one developer on a team working on a feature. And you've also talked about not being proponents of strict TDD. So where does quality testing uh, come into your process? Great segue from what we just talked about. Um, We only ship good software in the terms of like well-built software at all levels of fidelity, but well-built. And to me, that comes down to a level of confidence. 
do I have confidence that the criticality of what we're working on right now is going to land in the hands of customers and like be good? What do we need to get to that level of confidence? It's funny, Jason just mentioned this product discussion we were having and we were going back and forth about elements of it. And one of the elements is this um, live updating field that takes data and saves data. And this is one of those things where I look at that and go like, that's actually quite high criticality. If you're taking live data in and you can have it open on multiple devices, you could potentially overwrite data. You could lose data. That really matters versus, for example, presentation of data. Let's say there's data that already exists and you're looking at a screen that's presenting that data and maybe the presentation is a little off, right? You can fix that bug and no data is lost. No data is corrupted. That is lower criticality. So I need less confidence to do that. If I need less confidence, I can write fewer tests. I can put it through a shorter QA process versus when we're doing things that mutate data or otherwise deal with very sensitive stuff. We do a much longer process. We have not only just a a QA person, we also have a QA uh, firm that we work with externally and we apply more of that, the higher the criticality is and the higher the level of confidence that we want to have before we ship. But it's just like the fidelity thing. Um, I worked on a handful of features a few weeks ago where we shipped like three things in four days. They were all low criticality. I turned the sort of process dial down to zero. There was no explicit QA process. We didn't involve the outside firm. We didn't do all of those things. I just tested it to a level of confidence where I'm like, it's not going to break as soon as we launch it because I haven't looked at it at all. But if there's a minor issue, whatever, I'll just fix it. And one of the three had a minor issue and I just fixed it and I pushed it, right? So I think that comes back to that Are you fluid enough that you can vary your process? If you are, you can get so much more bang for your buck. But the bottom line is it's got to be good. And good is a derivative of the confidence you have if you are a competent builder. Well, awesome. I think that is a fantastic place to stop. Thank you, Mark. Uh, If any of you out there have questions for Jason and David, leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Or better yet, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at rework.fm. And that'll do it for this episode. Next time, we're talking about the illusions of agreement. Uh, So I will see both of you next time on Rework. For now, I want to say thank you to David Heinemeyer Hansen. Thanks, Sean. And thank you, Jason Fried. Thank you, Sean. We'll see you next time. See you then. Rework is a production of 37 Signals. Our theme music is by Clipart. We're on the web at rework.fm, where you can find show notes and transcripts for this and every episode of Rework. We're also on Twitter at Rework Podcast. If you're following along in the book, next week we'll be discussing the chapter Illusions of Agreement. And if you like this show, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to this. 